Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. I pretty much never do this. I don't start off a message with an announcement or a promotion for something, but I'm going to break my own rule. I want to take a quick minute and talk to you about the upcoming marriage retreat uh, because it has just now become something that you can sign up for. This is something my wife and I plan all year long since we lead the married life ministry here at New Spring. From the moment that last year's marriage retreat is over, we start planning the next year's and it's something that it's For my wife and I, it's like the highlight of our year. We love doing this. And we've got an amazing speaker lineup this year. Um, We're going to be speaking, my wife and I, Dan and Debbie Kubish are going to be speaking. Uh, Daniel and Rachel Mahana are going to be speaking. And so is Jesse and Sarah Mahana. Just an amazing speaker lineup. A lot of wonderful topics that we're going to discuss. We're going to have a great time. Beautiful hotel in Kansas City. You'll get to visit the city of the recent Super Bowl winners. Um, (laughs) If all goes well, if all goes well, okay. That's not a prophecy, just so we're clear, okay? All right, so anyway, uh, hopefully it'll be something that you think about coming to. We already have several registrations coming in. We were sold out three months in advance last year, so we really um, would encourage you to think about that. Um, If you, uh, and by the way, we always tell couples, my wife and I do premarital classes, so when people decide they're gonna go out and commit marriage, um, we bring them in in a room and, and we do classes with them. And we teach them something called the three, two, one plan. And we say, if you do this, it's going to be very healthy for your marriage. You're going to do three things to systematically invest in your relationship over the course of the next year. So whether that's reading a marriage book together or going to a marriage seminar or doing something that's marriage enrichment. You're going to do two overnight getaways where you get out of Dodge and you unplug the phones and you spend time just connecting with each other and then one date night a week. Now, why is the marriage retreat so great? Because it kills two birds with one stone. It is both something that you do to to invest in your marriage, and it is an overnight getaway. How could you possibly lose with that, right? So anyhow, something to think about. So our series is called Flexible, and our tagline has been how to bend and not break when life isn't fair. And we've said that unfairness is universal. There's a single person in this room that isn't experiencing some kind of injustice in their life. Right? And that may be injustice caused by other people, maybe injustice caused by your health, it may be injustice caused by the economy, it could be a lot of different things that caused it, but we all experience unfairness, that's part of living in a broken planet. But what we did say, since week one, we've said that some people handle unfairness better than others. It's not a universal how we handle it. Some people bounce back and they're resilient, no matter how many bad things happen to them, they seem to float. 
They seem to always rise back up to the top. And then there are other people, it only takes a little bit of injustice to break them. Just a little bit of unfairness and they sort of fall, fall to pieces. So we said, we, as Christians, God has called us to be individuals who rise above the imperfection of the world that we're in. That because we have a perfect God who is within us and who directs our steps, that if anybody should be resilient, it ought to be people who follow God. So we want to figure out how to do that. And we've said that it's not easy because all of us have had the experience of having unfairness sort of take us off of the path that God has for us, right? We said, first off, unfairness is kind of a jolt, right? When you experience that pink slip in your face or somebody cuts in line in front of you or something happens that's unfair, it's like a jolt to your system. And it's distracting. It's distracting from the purpose or whatever it was that you were setting out to do. You had a good purpose in mind, a good plan. You had clarity about where you were going. And then that unfairness hits and suddenly it's distracting. And then we said it becomes absorbing. The unfairness becomes that cloud that settles in on top of you. And and all of a sudden, everything else that's happening around you and even relationships around you and people around you become less important. And they start to fade away. And the unfairness becomes the only thing that we can see. And then we said eventually, it'll derail you and you'll lose your temper or worse, you'll lose your identity and you you will become about the unfairness that has your attention. And so we said, we don't want that. We want to be able to, we, we want to be able to thrive. We want to be able to be resilient in a difficult situation. And we said that a great example of that would be the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Now, the reason we picked Joseph is because his life was like a roller coaster. Over and over again, Joseph goes through things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, and yet he still seems to rise back to the top. Somehow he always ends up successful no matter what bad situation he's in. And so we said, that's what we want, that's what we're looking for. So we've spent four weeks looking at the story of Joseph and trying to learn how to be resilient, trying to learn how to be flexible. If you recall, and just in case you haven't been with us for the first weeks, we'll do a real quick overview. We said in week one that Joseph was born into an unfair situation. His dad played favorites, and parents should never play favorites. Parents should not decide that one kid is more important or better or deserves more love than the rest of their kids, but Joseph's dad did believe that and did handle his family situation that way. And it was, it was made even more profound by the fact that it was a big family. There were 12 sons in this family, and Joseph was the favorite son. Joseph had 10 older brothers, and his dad treated the other 10 brothers like they were just, you know, hired hands on the property. But Joseph was very, very important to him, and he treated him with, uh, with special favor. As a result, the older 10 brothers just didn't have any use for him, and they decided that they'd had it with him. They were going to get rid of him. They tried to kill him, but in the process of trying to kill him, they had an opportunity to sell him as a slave, and they figured they'd make some pocket money off of this deal. So they sell him, not for a lot of money, for a little bit of money. They sell their brother. He ends up going to Egypt as a slave, and as you recall, he ends up sold to a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar is a well-to-do captain in Pharaoh's uh, military. And so Joseph ends up on the very bottom rung of the ladder there in a nation that he's never been to before with a language that he doesn't know how to speak and customs he's unfamiliar with. He was the favored son of a wealthy Israelite family and now he is as low as you can possibly go in terms of the Egyptian order, uh, social order. And so now 
You would expect him to be bitter. You would expect him to go offline. You would expect him to just bump along the bottom. But the Bible says, if you remember, that he became a successful man. And then we have this weird prepositional phrase. He became a successful man in the house of Potiphar, his Egyptian master. So what, it told, what the Bible is saying is he performed optimally in a suboptimal situation. This is a key element of resilience because we said in week one, if you need an optimal situation to be successful, you're never gonna get there because there is no such thing, not on this planet, there is no such thing as an optimal situation. All of us have some barriers and some obstacles between us and success, but Joseph managed to be successful despite the obstacles. So we talked about some of the ways that we could really try to learn from what he did in Potiphar's house. But as you also recall, he had a a problem. Once he sort of got all the way up the ladder in Potiphar's house, so he starts all the way at the bottom, but he's so good at what he does. He always brings his A game, no matter where he is. He gets promoted and promoted and promoted and promoted until he's over everybody in Potiphar's house. He's at the top of Potiphar's staff. And that brings with it some positive attention, but it also brings some negative attention because Potiphar's wife notices that he's handsome, he's good looking, he's well built, and she decides that she you know, wants to sleep with him. And so she starts putting pressure on him to sleep with her and he isn't gonna have any of that because he knows, number one, that that would violate his relationship with Potiphar, but even bigger than that, it would put a, a wall between him and God. He's, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do something that's gonna hurt my relationship with God. And he was very clear with her about that. And we said that we shouldn't be surprised that this whole scenario plays out with Potiphar's wife at this point in Joseph's life, because when we are going through an unfair situation, that's when Satan's gonna come at you with temptation, because the unfairness is such that it really requires a lot of your mental energy just to stay in a good frame of mind, and Satan knows that. So he knows that your energy to withstand temptation is lower, and that's when he'll come for you. And we said that Joseph taught us three things about how to deal with temptation when we're dealing with unfairness. The first thing is he said, no, you gotta go on record, you're not gonna do it. Number two is he tried to stay away from the temptation. The Bible says he kept away from Potiphar's wife as much as he could. And then the third thing is if you gotta run, run, right? The Bible says that at one point Potiphar's wife literally grabs his garment, right, as a power play to make him sleep with her. And he literally ran out of his clothes to get away from her. But then now she's got his clothes, and this is a great prop. And she uses it as a prop for her little drama. She puts on a little monologue for everybody around about how this Hebrew, which by the way, the Bible says the Egyptians despised the Hebrews. There was a racist tension going on there. This Hebrew came in and tried to rape me. Even though it was a lie, he didn't try to rape her. He was trying to stay sexually pure around her. But as a result of that, Potiphar had him put in prison, as you recall. And then we said that in prison, you know, now he's starting back at level one again. He keeps going back to square one, even though he didn't do anything to deserve it. But in prison, once again, he brings his A game and he gets promoted and promoted and promoted. I don't know how prisoners get promoted, but he got promoted to being the head prisoner. He got, he got promoted to being the best prisoner in the place so that he now is overseeing the operation of the prison for the jailer. The jailer doesn't have to worry about the operation of the prison because Joseph's got it under control. And we said that now Joseph is languishing in this prison. He, he's there for life. He doesn't know how, you know, this, as far as he's concerned, is his future. He's staying in this prison, staring at these walls for the rest of his life. And then suddenly, a couple guys show up in the prison. The Pharaoh's chief butler and chief baker, they both got in trouble with the Pharaoh, and they're in, in prison. He's supposed to take care of them. One night, they have dreams, and they don't know how to interpret their dreams. But Joseph has the gift from God of interpreting dreams. 
So they tell him his dreams and he gives them interpretations. They're 100% correct interpretations. And he tells the butler, look, the fact that you're going to get restored to your job, I mean, that's the interpretation of your dream. You're going to have your job back. But when you get your job back, do me a favor, will you? Tell the Pharaoh about me. Tell him I'm, I'm here and I shouldn't be, I shouldn't even be in Egypt. I was kidnapped from my homeland and then I ended up here and then I've been falsely accused. He gives him the whole story. Butler says, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. But then when the butler is restored to his job, whether he just completely forgets about it or whether he just doesn't want to rock the boat since he just now was brought back from prison, he forgets to say anything about Joseph for two years, over 700 days that Joseph is waiting to be remembered. And we talked last week about the fact that it's tough when patience becomes such a big part of the equation when everything is falling apart. It's one thing to be patient when everything is stable and everything seems okay, but when everything seems like it's not okay, it's really hard to be patient. But then we said after those two years, the Pharaoh himself had a dream, and it was a weird, weird dream, and nobody could give him an interpretation of what the dream meant. And all of a sudden, the butler remembers, hey, I know this guy that I met back in prison. He knows how to interpret dreams. So they haul Joseph out of prison. He comes in, and he interprets the Pharaoh's dream. He says, here's what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of incredible prosperity in Egypt more than you've ever seen before. I mean, it's going to be amazing. The agricultural product, the financial product is going to be un unreal. And everybody's going to think that that trend is going to continue. But after those seven years, there's going to be seven years of economic depression so bad that people will forget what the good years were like. And if you don't have a plan to save up some of the plenty for the years where there isn't plenty, people are going to die. Now, here's what I suggest. I suggest you find somebody who's a good manager and have that manager set up storehouses across the land of Egypt, collect 20% of people's income over the seven good years, so that in the bad years, there's going to be stored up supplies and food so that the people in Egypt will live. I mean, this is the first time Pharaoh had gotten a dream interpretation and a game plan all in one package, right? And he says, look, this guy has God... On his side, this guy is a good manager. He's got all the qualifications we're looking for. I think we ought to promote him. So now you've got Joseph going from prisoner number whatever to being the second in charge in Egypt. So much so that the Pharaoh set it up so that the only person in Egypt with the power to overrule Joseph was the Pharaoh himself. So if you imagine what seven years of plenty had to be like for Joseph. Those had to be good years. And they were good years. There were year when, years when Joseph's family got started, when, when even by the way that he named his children, he said, I've begun to forget what I've experienced. I've begun to forget some of the really darkest days. Seven years of prosperity, where he is living in a beautiful home. You know, they ferry him around in a limousine with secret service detail. I mean, he, everybody bows down when he comes around. And finally, he's getting the respect that should follow the kind of manager that he is, that should follow the kind of strategist that he is. But then the seven years of famine hit. And it is in those seven years of famine that Joseph's value really becomes apparent. Because at that point, they had food supplies and nobody around did. The famine was so severe that it impacted the nations around Egypt. But Egypt was the only place that had food, and the only reason they had food was because Joseph had set it up for them to have food. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us Egypt had so much food, they had enough to spare to sell food to people in the nations that were around Egypt, which is where we find the beginning of our story today, because Joseph is going to have to come face to face 
with his past. See, Joseph's family, his brothers and his dad, they live in one of those outlying areas where there's no food, no food at all. And they heard that there was food in Egypt. So Joseph's dad, Jacob, sends Joseph's 10 brothers to go and buy food from Egypt. And guess who's selling the food? Well, that would be Joseph, right? So you have the 10 brothers who show up in front of Joseph, but you have to understand at this point, they don't recognize him. I mean, he's been there for a while now, you know? He, he's a full-fledged Egyptian. He, he acts like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. You know, he walks like an Egyptian. And, you know I had to go there. I didn't have a choice. Um, they don't know him, but to him, they look just the same as they did years ago. He knows his brothers. So now he's got to figure out what's he going to do. Recent weeks, I've started every message with a question. First message started with a question, how much unfairness can you take before you break? Week two was, how much unfairness can you take before your integrity breaks? Week three was, how long can you keep the faith when there's no light at the end of the tunnel? And this week, our question is this, when will you let go of the unfairness of the past? Because... I've met some people before who are on the other side of the unfairness that they've experienced, and they're still broken. I'll give you an example. I met with with a man some years ago, came into my office to deal with issues related to his own sort of emotional well-being, and he had been let go from a job years earlier and felt that it was very unjust the way he had been let go. He felt like he had been singled out been mistreated, the specific person was sort of the target of his anger, that this one person really, he thought, railroaded him out of the company. He had been unemployed for about a few months, and then he got a job that was better than the one that he had before, with better income, where he got along with the people. And then in that job, he did so well, he got promoted, his income got better. By the time I sat down with him, and this has been years later, he was in an incredible spot. I mean, I I could give you the details, but he was in an amazing occupational spot. His job was secure, his his income was great, and yet he was still broken because he still felt that it was so unfair what happened to him back then, and he felt like the person who had it out for him never got paid back for the evil that they did to him. So there's there's a point at which we have to address what happened to us in the past that was unfair, we've got to determine whether it's something that we're going to hold on to or whether it's something that we're going to grieve and let go of. When will you let go of the unfairness of the past? Now, I'll tell you this about Joseph. Joseph's story is so full-featured and so long, and there's so much print on the page devoted to Joseph. There is no way that in four weeks we could adequately cover it. Um, so there's part of the story that I'm going to kind of really speed through, and I apologize for that, but that's the only way that we're going to get to where we need to be today. Now, if you feel that I sped through it far too fast and you want to go into more detail with it, I would encourage you to get an old new spring series called Thrive from 2009. I promise in that series, we went into it in a lot more detail. But the part that I'm going to have to skate through pretty quickly here with you is what happens when Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy grain. Now, I told you this family has 12 sons, including Joseph. When the kids go to Egypt, now they're grown men, of course. When when all those sons go to Egypt to buy grain, only 10 of them go. So you're probably wondering, where's the 11th kid? And that's a really great question. Remember that we said that Jacob, the dad, had had kids with four different women, right? 
Two of them were maids, right? One of them was a wife that he loved so strongly, it's hard to put it into words, so much that he was willing to work for 14 years for the privilege of marrying her. 14 years for no wages, just so that he could marry this woman. The other woman is a woman he was tricked into marrying that he had no use for, right? Now, the thing is, the two maids and then this woman that he got tricked into marrying had quite a few kids. But Rachel, the woman that he loved more than anything, wasn't able to have kids for a very long time. Eventually, she was able to have two sons. The first was Joseph. The second was a son named Benjamin, and she died right after giving birth to Benjamin. So Joseph was dad's favorite, but what do you think happens when Joseph disappears and his brothers say that Joseph's been torn up by a wild animal and they show him evidence, they dipped his, his robe, coat of many colors in, in goat blood and gave it to him and said, look, he's obviously been torn to pieces. Guess who's the new favorite kid? Benjamin. Of course Benjamin's the new favorite kid. So now Benjamin is, you know, mostly, you know, he's, he's mostly grown up. We're not exactly sure exactly how old he was, but, um, you know, probably in his 20s, we would suspect. Um, and dad is not letting Benjamin out of his sight. Not, I mean, this kid, after losing Joseph, you want to talk about a hovering parent. Jacob is not letting Benjamin go anywhere. So now the kids have got to go, or I keep calling them kids. The sons have got to go to Egypt to buy grain. He let, he's not going to let Benjamin go. So it's just the 10 sons. And by the way, these are the same 10 sons who put Joseph in the pit years earlier. Now they show up. They're trying to buy grain from Joseph. Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who Joseph is. So he does something very elaborate, which is why we don't have enough time to really go through it. But he does something very elaborate to sort of initially take care of them, but he's got to figure out a way to get Benjamin to Egypt, and I'll tell you why. He knows that this bouncing back and forth from Egypt to Israel, getting food, taking it back, he knows that's not going to work long term. This is seven years of famine. They're, They're not going to survive keeping on making these journeys back and forth. He knows that. So he knows if they're going to survive, he's going to have to bring his entire family from where they're living to Egypt. He's going to literally have to move them to where he is so he can take care of them. But he also knows that you can't move somebody with an old attitude to a new place. See, the thing is, he knows there was a time in which his brothers thought it was not too big a deal, not not too big a line to cross to literally get rid of somebody that you don't like, even if it meant killing them, even if it meant selling them into slavery. So he's got to find out whether they're still in that same frame of mind. And that's important because as a culture, and especially as a Christian culture, we need to understand that there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration, right? Forgiveness, the biblical picture of forgiveness is to tear up a bill, to say, you don't owe me anymore. You don't have to pay me back for what you've done to me. But that forgiveness and restoration to privilege are two different things. Forgiveness is something we are always called to do by God. Restoration is something that is a matter of wisdom or not wisdom, whether or not it's wise. So if a person's spouse cheats on them and goes and sleeps with somebody else, well, they need to forgive their spouse for that. They can't hold it over their head and say, you have to find a way to pay me back. How could they pay them back anyway? But they can't, can't say, you have to find a way to pay me back. But they do have to ask themselves whether restoring that spouse to the same level of privilege, whether moving forward in the marriage is the right wise choice because restoration to privilege and forgiveness are two different things. So he forgave his brothers. I think he forgave his brothers as he was walking to Egypt behind a slave train in shackles. But whether or not he can bring them to Egypt, well, that's another question. So he needs to get his brother Benjamin there. 
because he needs to run a test. So he tells us, he tells his brothers, look, um, if you, if you want to buy more grain, if you want to come back and see me again, you're going to have to bring your other brother. Prove to me that he exists. He kind of created a ruse for why he needed to see his, but you're going to have to bring, you're going to have to bring your youngest brother. So they go home, they go through all the grain that they got in that initial trip, and they, they tell their dad, look, dad, I know you don't want to let Benjamin go, but seriously, we're all going to die if you don't let us take him. I mean, we've got to take Benjamin because we're not even going to get to see the guy that sells the grain if we don't take Benjamin with us. So finally, dad relents, and they take Benjamin to Egypt. An, an interesting story, a lot of detail there in the story, but what ends up happening is Joseph plants an item in Benjamin's grain sack lets them leave to start heading home and then sends a SWAT team out to go pick them up and accuse Benjamin of stealing something from him. So that now they're back in Egypt and he says to them, look, this youngest kid stole from me, so I'm gonna put him in prison. The rest of y'all can go. Y'all can go home, but I'm putting this kid in prison. Now, why did he do that? Well, because years ago, it was not a huge thing for them to take the favorite son and say, well, if he ends up in Egypt doing whatever, who cares? As long as we're in good shape, we're in good shape. He needs to know whether they're still going to feel the same way. Because if their heart hasn't changed, they go, well, you know what? We made up a story about Joseph. We'll make up a story about Benjamin. We'll go home and we'll tell dad something bad happened to Benjamin and it'll be the end of the story and everything will be okay. But interestingly enough, one of the brothers who was instrumental in putting Joseph in the pit years earlier, speaks up and says, you know, I promised my dad that I was bringing this kid back. I promised him. And if I go home without Benjamin, it'll kill my dad. And he said, I tell you what, I tell you what, let's do. You put me in prison, put me in prison for the rest of my life, but let him, let him go home. And the Bible tells us it is at that point that Joseph breaks down weeping and tells his brothers who he is. Why? Because he knows that whether or not whether or not his brothers are perfect God followers at this point, he does know one thing. He does know that their heart has changed. That they don't feel that that line is crossable anymore. They're not going to cross that line anymore. So now he moves his brothers and his dad to Egypt, just like he had hoped to do. Now he's taking care of his family. His family is in better, better situation than they've ever been. I mean, they're living in nice accommodations. The Pharaoh is nice to him because they're the family of his second in command. You know, they're getting to go to social events. I mean, it's kind of a big thing, you know, and, and it's a whole different life for them. But there's a key element that is sort of hanging in the air, and that is that Jacob is still alive. When Jacob dies, his brothers go, oh, we're so stupid. We're so stupid, of course. Joseph is going to treat us nice while dad is still alive. He brought us to Egypt so he can keep an eye on us. He treated us nice so that dad will think that he's still the favored son, that dad won't have any bad feelings, but now dad is dead. This is when he puts us in the torture chamber and pulls us from limb from limb. This is when we actually experience what he's always wanted to do to us, when dad is dead. You ever heard this phrase, turnabout is fair play? You've heard that phrase, turnabout is fair play, you know? Merriam-Webster has a dictionary now of idioms, and they say this is what this means. It's used to say that it is fair for a person to do something to harm someone who has harmed him or her. I mean, it's an interesting idiom, it's an interesting phrase, but it's kind of built into human nature, don't you think? Because you, you can see this in a, in, you know, with toddlers, you know. 
uh, especially if you have two kiddos that are just right, they're born within like a year of each other, and they're really small, and one of them whacks the other, you know, boom. Right? Especially if they're boys. Girls don't do this, but if it's boys. That... And the other one is like, oh yeah? Boom, right? Hits them in the... So it's like all of a sudden you've got this thing going on between the two of them, but we have this inborn thing that's like, if you make me hurt, I make you hurt. If you harm me, I harm you. We're going to spread it around, right? I'm not going to be the only person who's got to deal with pain here. If you're going to cause me pain, I'm going to make sure equal pain is caused to you. And we would expect that from Joseph because that's part of human nature. The Bible says, after burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back Turn about his fair play for all the wrong we did to him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say this to you. You can't make this stuff up. Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for the sin in treating you so cruelly. We, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. And now they come in and into his presence and bow down on the floor. After Joseph receives the message, he broke down and wept. His brothers come in and throw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. Here's my question to you. What would you do if you're in Joseph's place? I know what I would do. I didn't know immediately. I had a lot of fun thinking this through over the week. I had to really process it, you know. I thought if it was me, I would dig 10 pits, right? Nice, deep, dank, you know, moist, moldy pits. I'd put my brothers in. And then I would put in some snakes. Not, not venomous snakes that would kill you, just snakes that would scare the ever-living crud out of you and make you hurt yourself, you know. And after letting them be down there for a little while and really feeling the panic, you know, then I would pull them out of there and I would have them stripped of their clothing and put on a slave auction block and let people bid for them and let somebody pay next to nothing for them to now own them for the rest of us. See how they like what I went through and then let them go and serve at the lowest level and be treated like nothing, like I was treated like nothing. I wouldn't make them live through it as long as I did. I'd just let them have a few days of each stage of the Joseph experience, right? I would let them take the guided tour so that they understood what my life was like so that they could adequately apologize to me because until they've lived through it, how could they possibly apologize for it when they don't even know what they're apologizing for? That's what Jonathan would do. <laughs> what would you do? This is what Joseph did. Joseph said, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. He's saying, by the way, you think what you did to me is this important? In, in the scope of my life, what you did to me is this important. What I'm doing right now to save the lives of everybody in Egypt and surrounding nations, that's what's really important in my life. What's important is what God has called me to right now. What you did to me is just one chapter of the story. What, what God is doing through me right now, that's the major story. No, don't be afraid. I'll continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Jonathan would not be speaking kindly. Even if I was nice, even if I showed grace, I would be cranky. I'd be like, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. Three things that Joseph teaches us in the speech 
that he made to his brothers. Here's the first thing that he teaches us if you're taking notes. The first thing is he said settling scores is God's job. He said, look, I, I'm not God. If I was God, then maybe I would be punishing you, but I'm not God. That's, job, that, that's God's job description. I got other stuff I got to worry about. See, the thing about it is, if you make fixing the world your job, then whatever job God has called you to, you will neglect. You will neglect the job that God has called you to if you try to do his job, and this is sort of a newsflash, if you try to do his job, you will constantly feel underpowered and like you're failing. You'll feel overwhelmed if you try to fix the world because no human being, no human being can perfectly settle a score. That is above our pay grade. This is what I've learned. I've learned that the act of score settling usually creates new problems. And you can play that through a bunch of different ways. But I'll give you one quick example, even though my time is running short. My daughter, my eldest daughter is a freshman in high school. And I know what you're thinking, Jonathan, you don't look uh, old enough to have a daughter who's a freshman in high school. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Um, But years ago, this has been, I guess, three or four years ago, she was in pre-algebra. And she was doing really well. She's always been very good at, at math. And, um, but she would bring sometimes problems to me to help me, to, to have me help work through them with her. And so one night she had me check some problems. And I'm looking at this word problem. And I said, sweetheart, you solved this incorrectly. And I said, you know, let me, let me show you how to solve a word problem. Now, we need to take it out of paragraph form. We need to kind of create a grid for what's given and what you're trying to solve for. And I said, you're going to need to do this when you take the ACT and the SAT. And this is good to just kind of keep in mind. And I'm pontificating about, you know, why we're doing this and the time is just getting away from us. Eventually, I, you know, I solved the problem. Here's how it is. And, and she said, well, you sure that's how you solve it? No, I'm serious. You got to trust me on this. I know what I'm doing. This is the right way to solve the problem. So she takes it to school the next day. And um, Wendy calls me on the way home from school with the girls, because I had to work late that day at the church. And Wendy says, hey, that problem you helped Cheyenne with, she got it graded wrong. And I said, that's ridiculous. Uh, I, know what, I, I, I know that the answer that I helped her find to that problem is the only answer. Of course, it's the only answer to that, that problem. I mean, I'm like, sweetie, this is pre-algebra. I know what I'm doing, you know? And um, so we got home, and I told Cheyenne, I said, Cheyenne, I'm going to write your teacher. Because I think, don't get ahead of me. I said, I'm going to write your teacher because I think she needs to understand that she made a mistake here. And the thing is, I said, you know, I've taken three semesters of graduate statistics, and I got an A in all three of those. You know, I, I'm, I'm the one with the master's degree. I'm the one who can write her and tell her, obviously, I know what I'm doing. She's obviously made a mistake. And I said, I want her to understand that she is, she is diminishing the trust my daughter has. And I mean, I, I went deep, folks. She is diminishing <laughs> the trust that my daughter has in me to help her with her math. And my daughter, who is wiser than her father, said, Dad, you need to think this over. Why don't you sleep on it, you know, before you send anything? And uh, she said something. She said, Dad, you know, you only see this, this person once every once in a while. I have to see this person every day, you know. Later that night, I asked Cheyenne to bring me her math book, and I reworked the problem, and I found my mistake, she was, the teacher was correct, and actually Cheyenne, the way she had originally worked the problem, uh, was correct. Um, so there's that. Um, <laughs> but if I had sent that email, I would have done this, right? If I had sent that email by trying to settle a score, I would have created new problems, and how many times have we done that? 
We tried to fix a problem and in, in trying to fix it. As a matter of fact, I tell husbands this all the time when I'm doing uh, marital coaching. I always say, if you don't understand a problem and you try to fix it, you'll usually make it worse. And that's the thing. We may understand part of the problem, but we don't understand enough of the problem to try to fix it without accidentally making it worse. This is what the Bible says. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. And here the word righteous means calibrated and correct. And what the scriptures are saying by inference is that our anger when a situation is unjust or unfair tends to be uncalibrated and incorrect. It's not metered. The Lord says, I'll take revenge. I'll repay them back. We're familiar with that verse, but keep reading. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Okay, so quickly, is God saying that our job as Christians is to heap burning coals on people's? I don't think that's really the point here. I think the point is that if you are perpetrating unfairness or injustice, eventually you're going to experience discomfort. If we're going to cause somebody who's perpetrating injustice to feel discomfort, it shouldn't be discomfort of us perpetrating evil for evil. It should be the discomfort of them seeing somebody doing the right thing and the contrast of what they're seeing of somebody doing the right thing and how that contrasts from what they're doing ought to be the thing that makes them feel uncomfortable, not us perpetrating evil on them. God's saying, look, the person who's perpetrating injustice, because they've set themselves against God's nature, they're going to experience discomfort, but let them experience the discomfort of seeing how things should be. Number two, Joseph's saying God didn't cause it, but he can use it. I've heard some weird things over the years where people tell me, well, you know, God let my aunt get cancer. He must, you know, God works in mysterious ways. He must have a plan. Or it was, you know, God decided to take my nephew in that um, car wreck. And I, I don't know why, but obviously it was God's will. Now, Jesus asked us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Actually, earth is a place where God's will is frequently not done. So there are bad things that happen in this world because it is a broken world, right? And yet, the promise from God is that even though he didn't cause it, even though he didn't cause your aunt to get cancer, even though he didn't cause your nephew to die in that car wreck, he can use it. He can use the cancer for his purpose. He can use the car wreck for his purpose. He is the, he's the person who can take the bad and somehow weave it into a tapestry that works for good. Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He's saying that's what turnabout is. Turnabout is not fair play. What turnabout is is when God takes a situation that was aimed at me to destroy me, to harm me, to take me out, and God turns that situation around so that it then becomes a pathway to a whole new future that I could not have imagined for myself. That's what turnabout is. He said, he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. We're all familiar with Romans 8, 28, and I have this slide it's maybe a little too cute that says we serve a God who turns pits into platforms for promotion. But we see this in Romans eight twenty eight. We know that in all things, God works. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you're on track with God's purpose in your life, you should know that even in the bad things and the good things and the bad things behind the scenes, God is turning the knobs and the dials to direct you in the future that he has for you. Nothing that is engineered by Satan or by this broken world is so powerful that it can take you off track from what God has for you. And this is the last point I want to share with you, and that is that God is giving you a chance to stop the cycle. You know what the cycle is if you're a parent. You have little kids in the back seat, and one does something to agitate the other, so the other does something to agitate the other one, you know, and it becomes the cycle. And if you're a parent, you know there's no terminal velocity for that fight. It just keeps ramping up and ramping up. But when somebody decides to sacrifice 
instead of spreading the evil equally, because that's what turnabout is fair play is about. Well, let's just make sure the evil is spread around equally so that everybody suffers you know, equally. Instead, when somebody chooses to sacrifice instead of paying back evil for evil, it stops the cycle. That's why Joseph said, don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for your children. And he reassured them kindly. And, and we see this, by the way, in Hebrews 12, too, when it's speaking of Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy. I've always thought that was an interesting turn of the phrase in Hebrews. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know what I think it is? I think it was the joy of being a cycle breaker. That God was saying, despite the unfairness that we had perpetrated on him through our sin, he was going to sacrifice to break the cycle and give us an opportunity to have a relationship with him. The unfairness doesn't have to keep bouncing back and forth. You can be a cycle breaker. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.